Hi, and welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm your host, Robin, and I am here with Dawn, Katie, and Lindy. And at Storytellers Live, our prayer is that you would meet God in a new way through these stories, that you would realize that you're not alone, and that walls would be broken down and community would be built. This week, we have Angie from Katy, Texas, and I know on our intro, usually we have Dawn with us, but today Dawn is missing because she is working on a special project for us. She's furiously working in her house, and so y'all be on the lookout for a Bible study that we have created that is coming soon, and Dawn is working on that, and so today we will be talking about Angie's story without her. And so, Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Angie's story? Well, Robin, we titled Angie's story, Striving to be Good Enough, because Angie takes us through this journey of striving to achieve for God or faithfully serve Him in some sort of capacity. But through the adoption of her two children from Ethiopia, she soon found out that while God can use her gifts, that's not what He wanted. What He wanted all along was her. I think that you're going to get a lot out of it. And as a fellow mom who has adopted internationally, I can really relate to this story. And so I really hope y'all enjoy it. And here's Angie. Hi, good morning. Um, Hethel kind of stole my thunder. My name is Angie Bowles and I am married to Mitch. Um, I do have four children. My oldest is Ashay, she's 10. I have an eight-year-old son, Simone, he's eight. Seven-year-old daughter who will be eight in March named Asher, and then I have a three-year-old son named Shepard. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about my family as we get into the story, but I really wanted to start off at the beginning um, of my story, and that starts at the, the very beginning. I was born to two loving parents, but for whatever reason, decided to get a divorce when I was around two months old. So for me, that's not a sad thing. That's something that I was born into and didn't know the difference. My dad lived here, me and my mom lived there. Um, to kind of, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on my childhood, that is another story for another day, but um, by the time I got into junior high, I could list just a long list of traumas and abuses that I experienced and I watched my mom and dad collectively go through seven divorces by the time I was in eighth grade. As you can imagine, going into high school, I desperately wanted stability, longing to be known, really just needed um, acceptance. And a lot of that was found in success uh, for me. For me, I strove to be good because that earned me attention and affection from my dad. And I don't know why I was always fixated on my dad. Um, of course, I wanted other people to be pleased with me, but there's something special about a father-daughter relationship. And I think that is meant to point us back to God the Father. But this was my earthly relationship. And so I found myself striving for that acceptance, love, and affection. And so what that looks like for me in high school was I threw myself into sports. In cheerleading, that meant I was going to win nationals. In softball, that meant I was going to start. In school, that meant I was going to have a 4.0. In extracurricular activities, that meant I was going to be an officer, not, not just in student council. You know, do you see how this is building up? Like, I was just striving and striving, but each new achievement didn't really feel the wrestling or the void that was in my soul. And yes, it earned attention, but it, it wasn't long lasting. 
And um, by, the, by the end of my senior year of high school, I found my friend group started to rapidly shift. I would have considered myself to be in the popular crowd. And then I got a job at Chicken Express. <laughs> and um, actually a lot, like everybody worked there. So it was kind of fun. But so I got a job at Chicken Express and um, my friend group started to shift because I worked with a lot of Christians. And I started hanging out with them and I started to realize, oh, my life doesn't really look like your life. So I quickly adjusted and I took on all the external behaviors of what a good Christian does. You go to church twice a week, you don't cuss, and you obviously listen to Christian music, right? So these are the things that I started doing because my friends are Christians, I'm gonna be a good Christian too. So toward, um, I guess I graduated high school and I found myself at summer camp and I had felt the Lord uh, pursuing me, pursuing relationship with me, but I already assumed I was a Christian because in rural Oklahoma, everybody knows who Jesus is. And so that was just an assumption for me that I was a Christian. Well, at camp, I felt the Lord speak into my heart and he was like, you're not mine yet. I responded, I grabbed my friend and I was like, I need to know him. And I remember praying a prayer of surrender and just saying, God, I want to follow you all the days of my life. And I can point to that and know that that was a sincere cry of my heart. And from there, you know, repentance happened and I started to, to walk in this new direction, but um, just relentlessly striving, pursuing what it meant to follow God. Um, I started to throw myself into Bible study and um, studying scripture, I mean, all things that are good, right? All these things that are good, but I am feeling like I'm playing catch up. All my friends know like who Noah is. I had no idea. Like I am trying to catch up with everybody by learning all of this stuff. And so this is about a month in to my relationship with Christ, I moved to college and I had a solid Christian roommate, which was just a gift from the Lord, but I moved to college and I desperately wanted to please God. I wanted to be found in his favor and just be accepted by him. And my season of life at that time was school. So you know what? I was gonna be really good at school. I was gonna pour myself into that and I did. Um, and that measure of success for me, like if, if I can graduate with a 4.0, then I know that I've given my best for God. And I don't know where these, um, achievement markers came from in my life or why I had decided that that's what that meant. But for me, that's what it was. And so that's what I did about a year after my freshman year of college. I'm going to jump around just for a bit. After my freshman year of college, I moved home from my first school and I married my husband, Mitch. Yes, I was 19 and just so ready to be married at 19. <laughs> um, so I got married at 19, began to commute um, to my school was finishing up school. I started serving in student ministry. Um, I felt like I could relate to the girls. I had made a lot of mistakes in high school. And if, you know, I just felt like if somebody had told me, hey, there's a better way, you don't have to do those things or those things aren't going to fill you. I wanted to be that person for people. And I, I still find myself um, drawn to teenage girls. But so I started serving there and then I started teaching 10th grade girls Bible study and started attending women's Bible study at the local church that I was at in Oklahoma. 
And I had um, older women who were mentoring me, speaking to me and beginning to affirm, I think the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of teaching. And so, um, well, that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to teach, right? So I start studying and, and using those opportunities to like develop and grow those gifts. And I can still tell you one of the greatest joys of my heart is to share with somebody something that God has taught me from his word. I don't like to be in front of people, but when I can communicate what the Lord puts on my heart, that's where I feel closest to the spirit. Does, I don't know if that connects with anybody else, but, um, so I can, I can point to that and say, yes, that is true in my life. But, um, so as I'm finishing up school and I'm developing this, this spiritual gift over here, Mitch and I start discussing, we're like, we are really ready, I think, to have a family. Like I'm finishing up school. It's, it's time. So we were able to get pregnant really quickly and it was working out perfectly on my timetable. I was going to graduate in May. The baby would be born in August. Like this is awesome until, um, around, I guess I was about eight weeks pregnant and I was sitting there and all of a sudden I just got flush and started sweating. And that was my only symptom. And I knew in my spirit, I need to go to the hospital. It's just, I, I can't explain like, when you guys start sweating, do you think, oh, I think I'll go to the hospital? No, but like I knew I need to go. And so um, my friend took me to the hospital. My husband was playing professional golf at the time. He was out, he was away. And um, so she took me, I got to the hospital and um, just through like various tests and things, they were like, um, your blood work says that you're eight weeks pregnant, but we can't find the baby. And I was like, that is concerning. So um, they were like, we are going to, you're, you're going to need to have surgery. They never even gave me a diagnosis. They were just like, you're going to need to have surgery. And do you want to do it here? Or do you want to do it at the hospital in Norman, Oklahoma? And I was like, I want to go to my doc, my doctor in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, around that time that I made that decision, my husband just came in the doors of the emergency room and I start getting violently ill, like um, the best way that I can describe it is my body was emptying itself, um, of, of everything. And, um, they couldn't even get an IV in my hand because my blood veins had collapsed. Like I was, and they still are like, well, um, you probably just have the flu. Like they cannot figure out what's going on with me. Um, I go unconscious and while I was unconscious, um, I remember God speaking his word over me and that's the best way that I can describe it. It was a moment that I don't think I can describe unless you were there. And so he's speaking his word over me. And I remember saying, God, I hear you, but I do not see you. And it was, so I like looked up and I started looking around the emergency room, like around the room, didn't see him, um, but felt like held like this underneath my, underneath me. And there was like this peace it was like a warm blanket. I don't know, a presence that just covered me. And uh, I remember waking up, Mitch is shaking me and he's like, wake up, wake up. And I said, I'm just praying. Like that was, that was my, <laughs> that was my response because I was like, I was perfectly content where I was at. Like uh, there's no stress going on here. So I wake up and I'm like, I, I'm just praying. He said, no more praying. And I was like, Okay, so I happened to, I looked down at that point. I mean, my blood pressure was like 90 over 
six, like it was way low. I don't even remember what it was. I had, I don't know how many IVs they were trying to get in my body. I do think they finally were able, they had to get them in me, but I do think they were finally able to get them in through my calves and through my arms. So in the emergency room to get me to come conscious, they had to give me four units of blood. From there, they, they were still gonna put me in an ambulance and send me an hour away. From there, my doctor was like on the phone. He was like, you're not sending her here. You're doing surgery there. She will die if you put her in an ambulance. And they were like, okay. So then they wheel me in and I'm waiting to go into surgery, literally knowing like I'm bleeding internally and they have to go in there and fix this. So I say goodbye. I literally say goodbye to my family, not knowing, you know, what's gonna happen. And anyway, I go into surgery, I come out and um, after the surgery and everything, they had given me eight units of blood, which a female body holds six to eight units of blood. So all of my blood volume had been replaced. And there was so much damage done. I don't know if you're familiar with an ectopic pregnancy. It's where the, um, the baby doesn't make it all the way into the womb. And so um, from where our baby was located, there was a lot of damage done and there were a lot of blood vessels there. And so that's why I bled so much. And um, so there was a lot of damage done from that. So walking out of that season, it was really probably first season of loss for both of us in our marriage. Walking out of that season, it was like, wow, we don't know. Are we going to be able to get pregnant? Are we going to be able to start a family this way? We did have another miscarriage like very shortly after that. There was a long season of just kind of waiting. Um, I remember we started to look into adoption and we just both felt the Lord say, wait. And we then found out that we were pregnant and we had Asher, who is our seven-year-old, in March of 2012. So after she was born, we literally got her home from the hospital, looked at each other, and we were like, okay, our kids are waiting. And we filed our adoption paperwork. She was three or four months old. Filed adoption paperwork. So started that process. So as we're working through the adoption process, by the way, I'm not going to focus at all on waiting to bring your child home when you're adopting, but it is long and it is trying. And if you really want to know God's character in a different way than you've ever experienced it, you should go through the adoption process and wait and have to trust in the sovereignty of God as he works all that out for you because you have no control. But I'm, I'm not really here to focus on that. During that season of waiting, I just continued to serve in the church, volunteer every opportunity, really throw myself into like teaching. I think, goodness, right before the kids came home from Ethiopia, I think I was teaching for women's Bible study on Wednesday night and Thursday mornings. And Sunday mornings, I was uh, leading 10th grade girls Bible study. And then on, not within the church, I was serving in, a, it's a human trafficking organization where you go out and, um, Basically, while women are working, you go out and you spend time praying over these women's needs as they are literally being trafficked there um, in the hopes of building a relationship where they will call that you can help get them out. And so like I was serving, I was doing all these things and all the while preparing my heart like my kids are coming home. This is a calling on my life. Um, I need to help them transition. I need to help them work through trauma. Um, if you could earn a degree in bringing a child home from a trauma background, 
I have it. Like you, I did all of the work that needed to be done to bring them home and be ready. And so three years after we filed um, our paperwork, we brought our oldest daughter, Eshe, home, who is now 10. And then a few months later, we brought our oldest son home, who's eight. We brought him home. And, you know, since I had done all my studying and due diligence on how to parent children from trauma, I knew that I needed to step away from my volunteering and uh, the positions that I was serving in because I knew that my kids were going to need me. And I wanted to focus on that and I wanted to fulfill that, that call well. So still raw. Um, it's hard to describe what it's like to be so excited to bring someone into your family that you love and long for and be met with on, on every act of um, love and provision that you show toward them, to be met with rebellion at best and pure hatred at worst. The moments, I mean, you know from what you read is like, they're not just gonna be grateful. They're not, and it hurts. So we bring our kids home and I, I'm looking at, um, okay, we need to work on attachment. We need to work on building relationships. I'm, I'm totally ready for this. And um, I remember, I'm just going to try to give you moments of what it's like because I can't describe, I can't describe it. Um, so one day we went swimming and I had the kids and um, remember they've never had anyone in charge of them. They were always their own boss and my oldest daughter was six, my youngest, he was four when they came home. Okay, so they've been their own parent for their whole life and my daughter, and if you know her, she is gonna change the world, but she was gonna jump in that swimming pool and I had to grab her because she didn't, have, she didn't know how to swim. I had to grab her, which led to screaming, kicking, biting me, scratching me, pleading for what all sense of control. Like you are not gonna control me, you are not gonna confine me and I just had to hold her and let her do it. And I remember thinking, God, is, is this what it feels like when you know what's better and I, uh, I can, I insist on going my own way. Is this what that feels like? Because it felt helpless. And uh, that is one of 30 tantrums a day times two kids. And then you've got a child who was the only and the oldest, now the youngest child. So it was pure chaos all the time. And um, on top of that, uh, my oldest daughter, she had, I mean, she's six and she couldn't count to 10 in her native language, okay? And so we had to start school and I wasn't going to mess with attachment bonds by putting her in school with a teacher because that's a lot like an orphanage setting. And so I was gonna homeschool. <laughs> and if you've ever homeschooled someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, I definitely recommend it. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so all of that to say, um, in, the, in these seasons of transition, I felt like I was treading water all the time, almost drowning. And you know, like you're underwater, but you can come up just enough to get a breath. That's what it felt like. And I remember, <laughs> God was so good um, for this scenario, but I remember walking into the doctor's office and it's my kid's doctor and he looks at me and he's like, you're not okay. Like. I was detached, I was, I mean, I was just, I was in survival mode. And he, 
He said, you're, you're not okay. And I said, no. I said, if anything veers outside of my control, I have no emotional capacity. I can't handle it. I can't, I can't do it. I can't function. And he said, um, so we, we continued on in conversation and he, um, ended that with diagnosing me with post-adoption depression and anxiety, which is, um, a really hard diagnosis to get, especially when you're fully prepared to help your children um, recover from their own trauma. To have your own brokenness now thrown in there, it, it felt impossible. Um, I remember um, the doctor saying, like, one, and he's a believer and he um, has also adopted. And so he was always looking out for us, but he, he just said, like, we're going to start some medicine and this is just going to be one of the many facets of grace that God uses in your life to bring healing. Just one of the many. It's not going to heal you, but it's going to keep your head above water. And so humbling myself, we started there. And um, during, during that season, after that diagnosis, I felt like a complete failure. All of my striving, all of my achieving, all of my measuring up, I couldn't fix them. I, I couldn't help them get past their own trauma and brokenness. And it felt like a failure for me. I felt like I was failing them, my husband. And I really felt like I was failing the Lord in that season. And I remember, man, more days, this is more days than not. I found myself locked in my bedroom, hiding under my bed because I had so many emotions that I couldn't control. And I would call my husband and I'd say, I need you to come home. Which, fortunately, we lived two blocks away from where he worked. So he could come. And he would come home. And it was just, I don't know if you can explode from emotion. But the feelings of failure and the, feeling, and the demands that my kids needed me and I couldn't provide what they needed was too much. And it just felt like I was going to explode. And so after months of this, I was just angry. I was angry at truly at sin and the death that it brings in our lives. I was angry um, that my kids had lost so much and that they had experienced so much at their age. Sorry. I, like I said, I just completely believed that I had, I had failed the Lord. Like I didn't measure up. And I remember um, one day I... Like, like I, I, I didn't measure up. I couldn't offer anything. I hadn't, I, I couldn't go to him in prayer because I hadn't proved worthy to even come to him because, I mean, my goodness, oh, I was a mess. And so I remember um, one day I walked into a room and I, I fell down in front of this white bookshelf and almost angrily, actually, it was angrily, I just said, why are you still pursuing me? Like, Why? Haven't you seen me? Haven't you seen what I've done? And I have nothing to give you. It's not here anymore. I don't even know. I don't know who I am. And I'll never forget the words spoken into my heart. He said, Christ is your righteousness. And it was like, like I could breathe. Like I saw like scales fell off and I saw all the ways, even from childhood, I had been striving to earn his approval, his affection, his love, to be worthy of being his. And he, he stripped it away and said, no, like, I don't want what you have for me. 
your righteousness, your, your I guess, a, a reason for being able to come to me is because of what Jesus did. Like, I, I love that you can use your gifts, but that's not what I want um, from you. That's not what I require for a relationship with you. And um, so th- I would say, like, from there, there was about a, a, an 18-month period where we had many, many conversations and the Lord revealed many, many ways where I was full of self-righteousness. And what I mean by self-righteous is that I felt that by doing this equated that I could then go before God. That's self-righteousness. Anything that I do gives me the right to go before him. And anything that I don't do on my checklist or whatever means that I can't go to him. And, and that's how I had been functioning and I didn't know it. I was functioning within um, my gifts and abilities without like in equating that as like true communion with the Lord rather than just being with him. You know, does that make sense? Um, so it, it, about an 18 month period. And I would say that from there, as the Lord showed me those things, I would have to turn and repent of like, okay, it's okay if I don't get this, this or this done, I can still come to you in prayer and uh, be with you. And uh, today I am, I have a check in my spirit where I know that if I find myself hesitant to go to the Lord in prayer, or if I find myself hesitant to really dig into the word and, and let the, the word speak back to me, it's because I either have unconfessed sin in my life or it's because I'm striving somewhere. I'm striving somewhere and I feel like I'm not measuring up. And so I built this barrier between us. Like, let me get this worked out first and then I'll come back. And that's not how it works. And so I'm so thankful that the Lord used a series of broken things to show me that you can't achieve this. You, he really used my kids to show me that. Like, you don't get to fix this. You can't achieve here. I, he stripped away my identity in teaching and striving and perfectionism to show me, like, he's enough. And I'm so, I would not have chosen it. <laughs> but I am so grateful that he was faithful to afflict me. And um, I want I want to speak just a second to my kids. Um, although I know it's not shocking to you guys that I wasn't enough to fix my kids. God really is. And if you could see who they they were and and I know a lot of you have seen who they are now it's like night and day but God has brought healing in their lives and it was a long long season of learning to be a family and learning to trust but my kids know what love is now they respond to it they trust people and they know Jesus as their redeemer not their mom not their dad Jesus they recognize that he is the one writing their redemption story. I, I like I said, I'm going to continue on this journey of striving and repenting. And um, I just try every single day to rest in Christ and what he has done for us and knowing that that, that is enough. It is enough. And um, I have a right to go before God through Christ. Like I mentioned in the beginning before Angie's story, being a fellow adoptive parent, our daughter is adopted from China um, and she's been home now for eight years. But 
I can so relate to so much of Angie's story, especially in the early years of the difficulty. But one thing that really stuck out to me that can make me laugh now, it was probably not nearly so funny in the moment, was having a degree in knowing about children coming home, coming from trauma. And it's kind of like reading all the parenting books before you have a baby. You have no idea what to do with the baby when they come. <laughs> you can read all of it. So and it's true. so similar. You can do all the homework. You can take all the classes. You can read everything you need to know about your child coming home from trauma and from difficult circumstances and not having a family. And then they come home and all the information falls out of your head mm. and you're left with a real human child that you do not know how to parent. And you're mm-hmm. screaming, but I did everything right. I really yeah. tried. I tried mm-hmm. to do everything right. I've read right. all the books. I've read all right. the books. Yes. Mm-hmm. God help. Um, mm-hmm. Which so is, which, okay, story. but that's a perfect um, analogy. God help. Mm-hmm. He wanted mm-hmm. to be in the middle of that. And yeah. that's, I thought when, um, when Angie referred to her uh, striving as self-righteousness, I could so relate to that. She talked about how, um, what she did and how well she did it thought it gave her permission to go before God. And so she knew that God was calling to her to adoption, but she thought because she wasn't, you know, acclimating her children well to the situation that she was failing and therefore right. could not go before God. Um, I just, you know, for, from a fellow um, a believer who strives, you know, early on in my walk thought, oh, I needed to to do all of these things right for God to make up for what I've done in my past or to be able to approach his throne. It was such a reminder to me that, that I'm not my righteousness. As she said, you know, Christ is your righteousness and Christ was the one who was going to write her children's um, redemption story, as she said, not her. Um, A reminder for me, you know, even with my children, I I say a lot of times, you know, I'm not writing their testimony, God is. And we need to be reminded of that as mothers. Right. And that is Satan's lie that he tries to tell us it's all about the doing. It's all about being good enough or doing more Mm -hmm. or being on the treadmill of performance along those same lines. I loved it when she said, the Lord just said, you can't achieve here. Mm, and, yes. and, you know, Angie, Angie, through her story, used those words, you know, pleasing, striving, yeah. achievement markers. Yeah. I mean, that is how she had defined herself. And so many women, children or not, struggle with, I've got to achieve, I've got to do, I've got to do more, I've got to be good. And it is not about that. Because if it were about that, we would all be doomed to hell. That's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. <laughs> Yes, it's not about striving. There's a a song that I love called There Is No Striving by Rita Springer. And the whole song is about not striving in your relationship with the Lord. He, Mm -hmm. He doesn't need that. You can strive in all these other areas if you really want to, but he does not want you nor need you to strive in your relationship with him to get it right. And aren't That's we so right. thankful for that? I think Otis is even thankful for that because I think I hear Otis. <laughs> Otis is Robin's dog. Um, um, it's actually oh, Holly. Oh, it's actually, it's actually Holly. Holly that is, is praising Jesus in the background. It is Wendy's dog praising Jesus that we do not have to be good enough to stand before the throne of God. I love and it. I, exactly. I will say, I will say that if, 
if uh, we had to be good enough, Hollywood be good enough. But that's another subject for another time. <laughs> we'll talk about that another day. <laughs> oh, I just assumed it was Otis because Otis, we, we yes. always say when we get together to record that Otis is our mascot here at Storytellers. <laughs> Otis is part of our team for sure. For but sure. not today. He did not join us on today's, not today's today. podcast chat. Oh, uh, I'm anyway, just I was, for Angie. I, I was just and, about to say that, Lindy, just thankful for her story. Yeah, yes. for transparency. And, you know, and an international adoption is not always an easy thing to talk about because you heard some of the difficulties that she walked through. And, you know, a lot of times you're doing that semi alone. And so just her, her bravery to talk about that and the vulnerability to say, Hey, this was really hard, exactly. but when God shows up, here's where you get to let go. And so I'm thankful for her sharing with us on letting go. And so I hope you all enjoyed her story today as much as we did. And we would love for you to follow us online at storytellerslive.org. If this is a story that really touched you, please pass it along to friends. We love when you share our stories, when you follow us on Apple podcast and you subscribe and you give us a rate and review. We love the reviews. We read them and we're always so thankful for what you have to say. And you can shoot us an email. On, from our website, let us know if there's a response that you have to this, something that you want to share about how God touched you through this story. And if you want to follow us online, we're on all the social media places on Instagram and Facebook at Storytellers Live Podcast. So have a great week and we will talk to y'all next week. Bye. <laughs>